<clears throat> you know how the story, um, the ultimate story begins of what we're doing here on planet Earth. Uh, and you really can't tell this story to the people of the world who are not converted, who are not Christians, or who don't believe the Bible, because the only place you find this story is in the Bible. You know, you find out that it all started in heaven, and that there were holy beings that were happy to serve a, love, a God of love, and everything was harmonious and happy and pure and good. And because God chose to give his creatures free will and make them, in a sense, all of them, I think were in, a, in at least that respect, made after God's image. We know that man, maybe more specifically, is made in God's image. But these, these uh, holy angels and un other unfallen creatures were made with free will and an intelligent mind that can reason and ask a simple question of the commander of the universe. Uh, wh well, why? Why should I do that? You know? And God would give them the answer, you know? And uh, you, know, you know the story that eventually you can share with those who accept Christ or accept the Bible as, as the source of, of truth. One of those holy creatures, in fact, the one that was the most talented and, and had the most authority in, in the heavenly, among the heavenly host, he chose to turn against God. He, he chose to start thinking about himself and how, how good-looking he was and how smart he was and how talented he was and maybe how he could run the universe better than God. And, uh, and because that is so inherently evil, it wasn't a big stretch for him to start telling lies about the situation to his fellow uh, holy, to his fellow angels. You know, he started to deceive them. You know, he didn't come out and just say, well, you know, you know, we all have free will and we can choose to serve God or we can choose not to serve him. And to tell you the truth, I've chosen not to serve him. He didn't, he didn't just come out and tell, they probably, even the ones that wound up going with him would have been horrified and said, well, can we end this conversation? I don't really... No, instead, he was already using deceptive techniques to spread his choice, his disaffection, with little subtle things like maybe, you know, like everything's perfect in God's kingdom. But, you know, he probably came up to one of the angels and said, hey, hey, whatever. Uh, you and I have been f friends for... How long would you say? And they'd say, well, you know, I don't know, 15,000 years? And um, he said, yeah, so we're really good friends. We're good buds, right? And he said, yeah, yeah. He says, you know, everything's really great here. Everything's great. And it. it's so beautiful. Everything's just in perfect order and harmony. But, you know, you see that lamppost over there? Don't you think it might look a little bit better if it was about five feet to the right. 
And, you know, the angel here, he doesn't really think that, but, you know, this is his good bud who's making a big deal out of the lamppost, and maybe he says, well, maybe. That's probably, it was something, you know, more sophisticated than that, but it was kind of like that. He's trying to win people over to a thought process that says maybe God's not so smart. Maybe he's not so perfect. Maybe he didn't make this place as good as it could be. You know, and probably a little, uh, you know, a little bit down the road as he gets more people sort of agreeing with him because they don't want to, I mean, after all, he's the head angel. Then maybe he starts to come out with something a little bit more overt, like, like Absalom did in the kingdom with David, where after he won the affection of the people, he started coming out with stuff like, I think I could do better than my father David. You know, when it comes to justice and running and making decisions about these various disputes that our people have, I think there would be more justice done and there would be more mercy shown and whatnot if I were the king. So then he started to overtly exalt himself to find a follow, an overt following. And that, that looks like, that's interesting how that pr- patterns the most likely thing that Satan did. Because at, at a certain point, he's got one-third of the holy angels not holy anymore. And they are with him, and they've gotten so overt that they're starting to talk rebellion and take over the place. And God in his patience and mercy explains to Satan and the rest of them what the real story is and how this is not a good idea. And they don't want to hear anything about it. And so I'm glad they got kicked out. Aren't you? I mean, they they decided they were going to press the issue. And when it came to push and shove, they were able to be kicked out of heaven. But the the unhappy part of the story is they came down here. And Satan was hanging around waiting to see if our parents would buy in. And we know that Eve bought in. And too bad, so did Adam. Right? Someone shared with me, one of our brothers shared with me a concept last week that I think is probably true. But you, you, it would be worthwhile to study it out and see if this is true. You know, Linda and I had the privilege once of taking a, a Bible course at Southern Missionary College years and years ago under a very godly, humble Bible teacher. And she reminded me that he had offered to the class his explanation that if, Eve, that if Adam had decided not to go along with Eve's bad decision, that God would have made him another Eve. And for years, I've sort of believed that, but not, not completely. And this brother shared with me a week ago what he thought. And I think, biblically, he's closer to the truth. The scripture tells us that Jesus would have died for even one. Well, that one was Eve. So had, had, had 
And it also, the scripture tells us that through Adam, sin came upon the race. So had, so I'm, I'm so, I'm kind of persuaded that had Adam, he saw the truth and he chose to side with Eve on this thing. He didn't want to lose Eve. He stopped trusting that God could take care of this problem and that he's going to step up to the plate and share her fate with her. And sin came upon the race. But had Adam not chosen to do that, Jesus would have died for Eve. And Eve would have been redeemed. I believe that. Because ultimately, apparently, by the spirit of prophecy uh, information, she and Adam are both redeemed. They both accepted the, the salvation offered by God's promises. So it seems likely that Jesus would have died for her, taken her penalty, think about it, and so won her love and loyalty back that she would have been saved. Marvelous. But anyway, that didn't happen. Adam chose to go to go with, with that flow, and we're all born in sin. In a world we never even I'm not that not that any of us are complaining too loudly, but born in a world that we didn't ask to be born in, with a nature that we embrace, unfortunately, but you know, we're not so sure we would have chosen to be sinners. But here we are. And fortunately, God's promises were made right there to Eve, right from the beginning. To Adam and Eve, they got God's promises for redemption. And there have been people of faith throughout history, throughout Bible history for sure, that have chosen to believe God's promises about complete forgiveness for, for our sin. And that God was the re would remedy the problem. And not just save us from the penalty of our sin, but save us from sin. To so change us that we would be restored back into the image of God. Isn't that marvelous? That God could fix us. He could heal us. He would. And all we'd have to do is ask in faith and make that, that be our choice. It's interesting that it always boils down to choice. It started with bad choice, and it can be finished triumphantly with good choice. And we have these wonderful examples in the Bible of people who made the good choice, even though they were born into a world of sin like you and I are. We have the example of Job, who God not only knew Job by name, Satan, who showed up there in chapter 1, verse 8, he knew who this guy was. He knew him by name. Because God said to him, have you considered my servant Job? It was like, uh, do you know who Job is? That was not question number one. It was known that Satan knew who Job is, was. And, and Job was a problem for Satan because Job was an example of of the controversy between the seed of the woman and Satan and the serpent. That we, don't, that we didn't necessarily, though born in sin, buy into his program 100%. And in fact, some would be like Job and buy out of his program in faith in God. Right? 
And Job kept his integrity even though this enemy of humanity, an enemy of God, put everything he could on Job except able to kill him. And remember, he worked through uh, Job's wife where he's trying to do the ultimate brain screw-up on Job where she comes along and says, well, you need to curse God and just die. I mean, finish, finish it. You know, I don't know why you're not dead already, but finish it. Remember? Uh, my, uh, the same brother pointed out to me a week ago that God did not uh, condemn that wife who said that. There's no evidence that he condemned her or that she's lost because Job went and had more children with that same woman, didn't he? Remember, God blessed him, gave him twice as much or more than that than he had before. And perhaps she also learned a lesson of faith. Then we have an example, uh, an interesting example of um, Asa, King Asa. I'll show you a place in the Bible. You can look it up. The story of Asa is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verses 2 through 5. And uh, King Asa, it tells us, did right. He did good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. So Asa is making good choices in a world of sin, born with a sinful nature, like Job, he's choosing God's way. Something that is open to each one of us, even unconverted people, but sometimes they're in error, like Saul, can choose God's way. And it tells us here that he, he took away the altars of the strange gods and the high places and broke down the images and cut down the, the groves where they worshipped idols. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and do the law and the commandments. Also, he took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the sun images, the sun-worshipping images, and the kingdom was quiet before him. Well, Asa received a severe test subsequently where Satan knew his name. And this time, unlike Job, where, where Satan would rather have ignored Job and pretended that Job didn't exist and, and, and come to God with a false representation of being in control on planet Earth, in this case, Satan gets to bring huge pressure. Any of you feeling some pressure these days? He gets to bring huge pressure on the faithful servant of God to try to break him. And Asa, putting through this severe test, is facing a host of a thousand thousand enemy soldiers. What's a thousand thousand, by the way? A million. A million. That was, that was the number of people in the second largest city in the Roman Empire. Right? Antioch is about a million people. That's a lot of people. Was that a half a million in Antioch? Huh? Did you say that? Oh. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, a million people is a lot of soldiers. A lot of soldiers. I don't think we have a million soldiers in the U.S. Army. 
I really don't. It's, it's less than that. So there's a million soldiers and 300 chariots. So they had uh, jet planes, you might say, for the time. And they invaded the kingdom. And the king's trust could not be in his soldiers because his army was no match. By all, by all appearances, they were done in. But look what it says. The king's trust, this is from um, Prophets and Kings, page 110. The king's trust was in Jehovah, in whose name marvelous deliverances had been wrought in behalf of Israel of old. Setting his forces in battle array, he sought the help of God. So he did what he could, but he knew that without the help of God, it's not going to work. Now Satan brings his pressures on us, and, 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 and as Christians, I would say, if something is rough in our lives, it's not, we're not, if we're converted people following the Lord, that's not just what happens to people in the world. That's Satan knowing us by name trying to get us to cave, to break. And God allows it because he knows that we will choose him. We will choose to gain his help and thereby get closer to him and have increased faith and love for him and become more sensitive to our fellow Christians and those in the world who experience the difficulties of this world. And, and so Asa is tested. The opposing armies stand face to face. And it's a test for every one of, of, the, of the Israelites who are standing there. Every soldier is being tested with Asa. And here's what they're thinking. This is, a, this is what it tells us. Had every sin been confessed? This is what the soldiers are thinking as they face the enemy. Have I confessed every sin? Do I really trust God to deliver us from the power of the enemy? Such thoughts as these were in the minds of the leaders from every human viewpoint, the vast hope from Egypt would sweep everything before it. But in time of peace, Asa had not been giving himself to amusement and pleasure. See, in a better time, the Christian is not to give himself over to amusement and pleasure. Because at a time of testing, you have to be, we have to be ready to trust the Lord. And to know that we've confessed every sin and that we do trust him to help us. Amen? So he, he had been preparing for, for any emergency. He had trained his army for conflict. He had endeavored to lead his people to make their peace with God. And now, although his forces were fewer in number than the enemy, his faith in the one whom he had made his trust did not weaken. 
Having sought the Lord in the days of prosperity, the king could now rely upon him in the day of adversity. His petitions showed that he was not a stranger to God's wonderful power. And this is what he prayed. It is nothing with thee to help, he pleaded. Whether with many or with them that have no power, help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God, let not man prevail against thee. Isn't that interesting? Don't, let not man prevail against you. We trust you. Do not let man defeat you. So what a pattern for wonderful prayer. The prayer of Asen, Asa, uh, the Spirit of Prophecy tells us on page 111, is one that every Christian believer may fittingly offer. So she, it's like saying that one that is a prayer that every Christian believer might appropriately pray would be our language today. We fight in a warfare not against flesh and blood. See, we, we get, the Satan wants us to think that we're in the world like other people and we're just fighting these bad debt collectors or, or, or robbers or harassers or, or bad bosses or you know, threats of this and that. But we're fighting against principalities and powers against spiritual wickedness in high places. Ephesians 6.12. In life's conflict, we must meet evil agencies that have arrayed themselves against what is right. Our hope is not in man, but in what? The living God. With full assurance of faith, we may expect that he will unite his omnipotence with the efforts of human instrumentalities for the glory of his name. Do you see, when, you, when we identify with God and his kingdom and his principles and his honor, he will help us because we trust him and for the glory of his name. It's not our fight anymore when we call on him. It's his fight. That's what, that's what Asa prayed. Let not man prevail against you. Clad with the armor of God's righteousness, we may gain the victory over every foe. Every foe. So wasn't that the experience of the three Hebrew worthies? You know, they... They didn't ask for that test. But when the test came, they said, we, they talked amongst themselves, I think. They said, we can trust God to deliver us from this hot furnace. And they, but they went a little step further. They said, but you know, King, we're not even going to be careful about how we're answering you on this one. Because whether God delivers us or not, though we know he can, we're not going to bow down to your image. No way. We honor and trust the God of heaven. 
And you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a bad dude, but he had some kind of honesty in his heart. There's evidence that he eventually became a follower of God. And he looked into the furnace after the, uh, the, guy, the big strong guys that threw them in were killed by the hot fire. Just by getting cl that close to it, they were killed. And he looks, into the, he looks into the fire and he says, how many did we throw in there? Was it just three? Because I see four. And one of them, and how did he know this? What, he, how did he know what, to, what this person looked like? He says, one of them looks like the Son of God. And you know, there, it's interesting, the spirit of prophecy tells us he had an idea of what the Son of God looked like because he had seen a good representation of God in Daniel and the other three Hebrew worthies. You see, that's what living for Christ can do for our friends and neighbors and even our enemies, is as the world gets more wicked, as evil starts to, to press, put pressure on us and on just unconverted people in the world, as they begin to feel, not even being evil, that they have to be selfish to just survive. You see? You see how evil increases? When nice kind of people, nice unconverted people, feel that they can't help but be selfish because they feel so much pressure on them. And while they're getting more selfish and trying to rationalize that and becoming worse and worse, they see God's followers more and more pure and full of love and not selfish. Even as the pressure increases, the contrast between Satan's subjects and God's subjects becomes so obvious, becomes Wow, what a difference. And many honest-hearted people, kind of like neutrals or Saul's, choose the right side, even before they know there's a gospel, even before they hear the details of how God so loved the world that he gave his only son to take the penalty of sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know, as they begin to appreciate the principles of righteousness, the love of righteousness, the purity of God's law, it becomes obvious that salvation isn't cheap. That salvation isn't just something you choose out of convenience, like, well, if you say you love Jesus, you go to heaven. No, you begin to see that you're a violator of God's law on an ongoing basis, and God's law is holy, just, and good, and you are the opposite. And that Jesus came and died on Calvary to take the penalty for that transgression that's ongoing that deserves death. And so your conversion under those, and the conversion of, of people coming to that message is a full conversion. That's real conversion. And we have to pray and ask, is that my conversion? Or is my conversion a cheap conversion? I just want a passport into heaven. Do we realize the, the, the uh, holiness of God's law and the enormity of, the, of what sin is?
And do we realize the enormity of God's sacrifice and love to take the penalty for that sin? And are we converted in our loyalty, in, in the heart, so that we love and trust, choose to love, trust, and be faithful and loyal to that, to that God, to that person? And remember that salvation is not just forgiveness for our violation, but ultimately what salvation really is comes from the root word for salvation, which is healing. Salvo in the Latin languages means health or healing. We are being healed by Christ. We're being sanctified, changed back into the image of God. So God has made this provision to bring us back into harmony with him, to love him with all our heart, to choose to serve him for eternity. And we not only get to know Jesus for eternity, and we get to be with holy, loving, happy people for eternity, but God is so thoughtful that he makes the only home we've ever known over and makes it what? How many, a million times better than Hawaii? <laughs> and brings us back home to the earth made new. Isn't that, isn't that thoughtful? Man, what a thoughtful God. That we're not only, I mean, it would be, I'm sure it would be happy in heaven for a thousand years. I'm sure it'll be like a, one thrilling, super duper concert and experience of, of meeting good people and. And, and learning all these different things that we wanted to always know about and learn. But to actually be brought back to the only home we'd ever really known and to experience the best of this world a million times better. How, what a thoughtful God. Amen? Don't you want to serve him for eternity? So we're going to look forward to uh, making sure that there's nothing between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ and this congregation, or even people that are not here, if there's anything, any issue that we've had with one another, let us confess that with the Lord, ask him for how we can make it, how he can make it better and, and make, it, make it heal, go away, whatever that might be. So let us go do the foot washing service to, to uh, be humble, stand uh, right before the Lord and then experience our, our communion service. Um, in the next several minutes. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the opportunity to not only worship today, but to do something special and to do that which you've laid out for us to do in remembrance of you. We thank you for your example of washing the disciples' feet. Help us to be willing to wash any of our brothers and sisters' feet in Christ. And even those who are not converted, let us have no, no issues between us. Let us love one another as you've loved us and loved the church. And let us love you supremely, we ask. Go with us in this uh, service, this service of humility, and bring us back to enjoy uh, our, our communion service, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.